you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. Can you stand it? It's coming back, baby. It is coming back. Austin Cross with you. Well, Larry enjoys his day off. I hope you're having a great Thursday. You know, we have a jam-packed hour today. Soon, we will be talking early intervention for autistic children. We're getting into the longstanding practice of applied behavior analysis. It's received a lot of criticism over the years. While, you know, some people try to find other ways, we're going to talk about that. But right now we're talking about weather. This President's Day weekend, we will see more rain coming our way in SoCal. That's according to the National Weather Service. How does this coming storm prepare or compare to what we've seen last week and what can we expect? Let's get some answers from LA's science reporter, Jacob Margolis. Jacob, thanks so much for making the time. Thanks so much, Austin. Happy to be here. Well, what are we looking at right now, Jacob? Yeah, as we heard from Suzanne, you know, it's going to be possibly, probably a whole bunch of rain from Sunday through Wednesday. And uh, the rainfall totals are a bit unclear. It could be anywhere from, you know, one to six inches, which is a pretty big range. But as usual, we'll probably see more in the foothills and the mountains as all those clouds get kind of like squeezed out over over those locations. And the big concern is obviously going to be that the soil is already so saturated in so many places that, um, you know, mudslides, landslides, uh, possible uh, deep-seated landslides, like the one we saw in Palos Verdes last year, uh, could, could come be an issue. So you did mention some of the areas, but I mean, let's double down on with the saturated land and, and the showers that we, we are expecting. Who should maybe be taking notice right now, thinking about their plan over the next coming days? I mean, every single time it rains, I just think about all you folks out in Silverado Canyon uh, and all the places like that that we always hear about flooding during heavy rainstorms. Now, what's a bit unclear about this storm right now, uh, and the models aren't completely there yet and probably won't be until this weekend, I would say, or even during the storm, um, is that it's a bit unclear as to where which areas are going to get hit the hardest. Um, I did talk to the National Weather Service, and they told me that it could be, you know, uh, it'll be a bit more sporadic than the previous storm, which was particularly dangerous because it was solid, heavy rain over a very wide area. Now, that could still happen, but like I said, the models are a bit all over the place. And when I asked, like, hey, National Weather Service, give me a little more detail, they said, really? Uh, anyone along the West Coast in California uh, kind of needs to be ready, even all the way into the mountains. You know, what has stood out to me about this weather event that's coming is there isn't a lot of specifics known right now. There aren't a lot of specifics mm-hmm. known right now. Uh, do you get a sense of when we might have a clearer picture of what we can expect over the coming days? Yeah, probably the weekend or when the storm actually starts. Um I, I will say, you know, I've, I've heard people, and it's, it's normal to complain or feel frustrated when models aren't completely clear, but atmospheric science is really, really, really complicated. And 
Um, the modeling quite often, especially when we're talking about climate change or say like how, uh, you know, a storm in the Arctic might impact uh, a butterfly flapping its wings in Arizona or something like that, something as detailed <laughs> as that, uh, it can be, can be a bit tough. And so, um, you know, the bottom line is we just need to roundly prepare for some level of hazard between Sunday and Wednesday. And uh, yeah, like don't put away the sandbags yet. And we'll probably see rain until like April, hopefully. I mean, you mentioned sandbags. Are we at the point where if folks haven't maybe gotten those yet, that sandbags are what we should start preparing? I mean, maybe maybe if you already made it through and all your stuff is already flooded, uh, you know, just be more flooding. I would say, yes, go get sandbags if you can, if you have poor drainage and stuff like that, which I do uh, underneath my Oof. house floods. And so that's always really lovely, no matter how many sandbags I stack. So, uh, you know, but obviously for people, especially in the mountainous areas or landslide prone areas, you're going to want to look out for those warnings from the National Weather Service, as we always do. And we will be keeping you updated on LAS, you know, shameless self-plug, uh, on our website, LAS.com. And then also, I think I'm going to be on ATC on Monday, and so on President's Day. And so we'll be chatting about that as kind of everything develops, too. I'll let you know what's going on. I mean, shameless, but very valuable, Jacob Margolis. <laughs> uh, you know, just to zoom out a little bit before we let you go, uh, big picture, how does this rainy season this year compare to what we've seen previous years in California? I mean, oh boy. Uh, locally, I think we're at over 200% in some locations in terms of rainfall, which is great for the landscapes in that they are saturated. Um, so it's great for the plants. It's good for the animals. It's, it's, it's not, that's not a bad thing. The part, the thing that I'm watching though is definitely uh, the water availability, which I've been talking about on the radio the past week or so. The water availability up in the snowpack, up in the, over in Colorado and in the Sierra Nevada. Uh, because we're really waiting for that to ratchet up. We were only about halfway there as of the beginning of this week and what we want for the entire rainy season. Um, and then that's also complicated by this has been a very, very hot start to the year, uh, as is typical during El Nino years, but also in a world with climate change. And so mm. that same snow, that snowpack won't go as far as we would want it to um, during these hot years because it melts faster, obviously. So hopefully we get more than normal, you know, uh, but I think that more important than local rain is that snowpack, especially for our water availability. And I'm curious, Jacob, if you do know, as far as our ability to capture mm -hmm. that water every time we have a storm, but especially this most recent one when we saw the L.A. River, when we see these mm -hmm. rows of water just going by. Uh, and all of us who have you know, lived in California for a number of years and we were living through the drought and the days when we could yeah. only water lawns on certain days of the week, you have to wonder how much of this we're actually getting to keep uh, for a non-rainy day. Is there any sense of if we've improved our ability to capture that in recent months or years? Yeah, I think in recent years, I think there's been a lot of effort to improve spreading grounds, to improve reservoirs, to, to put water away. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk, especially in the central part of California, is replenishing groundwater, but a lot of that takes a really long time. Um, and so I think we do need to just get better at it. And all the water authorities and everybody in that realm knows we need to be able to save as much as we possibly can. It's one of the reasons why we're also, you know, upping and California just approved the use of recycled water and like recycling sewage water, basically, and cleaning it and pumping it back into our pipes or into the ground for us to pull out. Uh, 
that's really important because we are going to go through these periods of really dry and those are coming. And as for this year, later this year, we don't know what the water allocation is going to be. It's a really complicated system. I only barely understand it, but the but over the next month, we'll find out kind of how much water is actually available to us. I wouldn't be surprised if we did have water restrictions this year as well. Although April 1st will really be kind of what we're waiting for to, to really find that out. That's LAist science reporter Jacob Margolis talking about the storms ahead this weekend. Jacob, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks, Austin. Stay dry. <laughs> I love it. This is Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross. And today for Larry Mantle, while well, he takes a well-deserved day off. When we come back, we are going to get into the longstanding practice of applied behavior analysis. That's a part of an early intervention process for autistic children. But there's a lot of controversy about it. We're going to talk about it when we come back in 60 seconds. Stick around. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and on the LAist app. I'm Austin Cross in today for Larry Mantle. If you have a child diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, most likely your doctors will recommend a treatment called applied behavior analysis. ABA therapy, as it's commonly called, is the most widely recommended intervention for autistic children. Now, the goal of ABA is to build skills and habits using a system of repetition and rewards. But there's a growing number of autism advocates speaking out against this form of therapy. They say the methods can be harmful. Joining me to discuss is Zoe Gross, Director of Advocacy at the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. Also with us is Jan Blatcher, Distinguished Research Professor of Education and Psychology at UC Riverside, where she's also the Director of the Search Family Autism Resource Center. And also on the line with us, we have Sneha Coley-Mather. She teaches master-level courses in applied behavior analysis at USC. So much to talk about in this conversation. I want to start with Professor Blatcher at UC Riverside because I think what's important in all of this as we talk about autism spectrum disorder is starting out with the definition of it as it is currently understood. A lot of our terms have changed over the past 40 or so years. Can you just start us off and help us understand how we define autism spectrum disorder, Professor Blatcher? Absolutely. And I really thank you for covering this topic on your show. There's just so much 
that's misunderstood today about autism. Mm. So, you know, I'm going to give you two definitions. Okay. I mean, one is what we call the medical definition. The American Psychiatric Association produces a manual. It's like a Bible of definitions called the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And even that suggests pathology, right? So that, that manual defines autism as having two key components, deficits in social communication and interaction, which appears across all contexts. And the second is restrictive and repetitive behaviors including sens sensory sensitivities, meaning, you know, um, being either hypersensitive to certain temperatures or fabrics or hyposensitive, less sensitive. Mm. Um, those two definitions, those two components in themselves are fine. It's how they're used by professionals in a sort of pathologizing way that has become a problem. Whereas and I think Zoe can, can, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or elaborate, but the autistic self-advocacy network folks would say, no, you know, autistic people think differently, they process differently, they communicate differently, they socialize differently, but all of those things are good. They're not deficits. Autism isn't less, it's just different. I'm going to come to Zoe in just a second, but I, I do want to double down and focus on the spectrum as well, just so people understand that there's a wide, wide range right. of abilities and needs. Can you just give us some examples so people can start to get their heads around that? Yeah, I think there are a couple of really important historical things that we should think about in terms of the spectrum. Um you know, when I was in graduate school, autism occurred in one in 2,500 individuals. That was the prevalence that was given. And today it's one in 36. Wow. So you can see the dramatic increase. And back in the one in 2,500 days, the majority of, of autistic children, and, by, and then we even referred to them as children with autism, um, had intellectual disability. You know, they weren't in the public, they were at home, they were in residential facilities and so on. As the definition, as, as the definition grew or the prevalence grew, we have different types of autistic individuals. And instead of just thinking of autism as individuals with an intellectual impairment, no adaptive skills, no language, no communication, we had a, a lot of children that were very, very bright. You know, IQs in the typical are way above range. And they spoke and they had some adaptive skills. And yet, the same intervention procedures were, using, were used with all of them. And today, some of those little kids have grown up and spoken about what it felt like to go through those interventions. And I think... That's why you're having the show today, if I understand correctly. There's been a backlash toward um, what we call applied behavior analysis or ABA. Talking right now with Professor Jan Blatcher, Distinguished Research Professor of Education and Psychology at UC Riverside. And we're talking about applied behavior 
analysis. It aims to build skills and habits that uh, many autistic people might not have. For more details on ABA, though, let's bring in now Sneha Kohli-Mather. She teaches master-level courses in applied behavior analysis at USC. And before, Professor Mather, we get to uh, the controversy and the disagreement with ABA, could you give us a sense of what the thought is with ABA, what the the philosophy is behind it, and, and how it's been uh, employed over the past few decades. Sure, absolutely. And uh, first, though, thank you, Austin, for having me on the show. I'm happy to share my knowledge with you, but I'm also really excited to learn from both Zoli and Jan. So I think this is a great group of folks, and I'm um, excited to be here today. ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, in and of itself, it's just the science of learning and motivation. We look at what's going on in the person's environment uh, that's influencing their behaviors, and how learning takes place for each learner, with an emphasis on positive reinforcement for teaching a skill. Now, <laughs> as far as what's been going on in the last few decades, it's kind of hard to not go into the controversy um, if we are going to talk about the last few mm -hmm. decades. I will say that um, LOVAS is uh, often quoted as using punishments and aversives, which mm -hmm. are unacceptable. They were unethical then. They are largely seen as unethical now. And um, many folks quote Lovas as saying that the goal of ABA is to make autistic people indistinguishable from their peers. Mm -hmm. However, if you actually look at the history of ABA, it goes way back to B.F. Skinner in the 1950s. And the goal of ABA has always been to help people thrive in their lives, not to assimilate or to behave, quote, unquote, normally or neurotypically, uh, but rather creating a world that supports each human and what they care about through the use of positive reinforcement, not control or punishment. Talking right now with Professor Sneha Mather. She teaches master-level courses in applied behavior analysis at USC. We actually already have a comment from one of our listeners, Richard in West Hills, who says that uh, his son went through ABA therapy from the age of three to eight, and he says that the development was incredible. But he also says that it really helps the parents. Uh, his wife and him learned about, and these are some terms we're going to get into in this conversation, reinforcement, immediacy, antecedents, extinction, overcorrections. And he thinks that it should be available for all parents. But this is where I put it out to you. If you have experience with this, if this has been your experience in life uh, as an autistic person, or if you have a child who's autistic and you've used ABA therapies, what's your experience been? 866-893-5722 is our number. 866-893-5722. Was it overall a positive experience for you or your child or... Uh, was this something that you have some criticisms of? 866-893-5722 is the number. I want to bring in now Zoe Gross, Director of Advocacy at the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. And I want you to tell us what the issues are as you see it with applied behavior analysis. We did hear some from Professor Mother, but I would love to hear you line those out as you've heard them uh, from the people that you've worked with. Absolutely. So applied behavioral analysis, it's a behaviorist intervention. It uses either rewards and punishments or just rewards 
to condition people to behave in certain ways and not in other ways. And a common goal of applied behavioral analysis is what is called normalization or causing autistic people to act non-autistic. An example might be um, causing someone to make eye contact if they are uncomfortable doing so, or stopping someone from what's called stimming, such as rocking back and forth or flapping their hands. At ASAN, we just don't think these are appropriate goals for autistic children or adults. And just because a behavior is typical of autistic people doesn't mean it's harmful. In fact, it may be helpful and important to the person doing it. Um, in college, I actually did an internship at an ABA agency um, and saw firsthand the difficulties that are caused by um, some of the methods used by ABA, such as ignoring people when they do behaviors that are typical of autism, um, that leads to people feeling that they can't trust the adults around them um, or uh, correcting someone whenever they do something that's typical of autism and it, giving them an alternate behavior to do instead. That leads to people feeling that um, their natural way of being isn't good enough. Um, I know I'm focusing a lot on normalization, but that's because this really is a typical goal of ABA and how it's commonly practiced. And yet one of the challenges with it is that ABA is also the only autism intervention that's approved by insurers and Medicaid in 50 states. And so I would, I would see a major problem here, especially for people who have an autistic child and they uh, can't afford to or maybe don't even have time to look into other treatments if this is the only thing that's provided. Um, could you talk to me a little bit about this sense that you know, ABA does teach autistic people, essentially the goal is to try to make them like non-autistic people. There is a whole psychological aspect to that for the individual autistic child, I would imagine, especially as they get older, um, where, as you said, it tells them in a way that how they are and who they are isn't how they should be, that they're, they won't be maybe accepted by society unless they do change their behaviors. Could you just tell me a little bit more about that and how you've seen that play out? Absolutely. So um, people have looked into this with scientific studies and have found um, that doing what's called camouflaging autism or purposefully masking your autistic traits, um, having that as part of your life is associated with increased likelihood of suicidal ideation, as well as increased likelihood of anxiety, depression, and stress. So um, teaching someone to mask all of their autistic traits is not without consequences. It has real negative consequences for people because of that message that you don't belong in society as you naturally are. You have to imitate others to be accepted um, and that because of the, the effort, um, you teach someone these behaviors, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't take effort to, to constantly hold up that mask and act like you're someone else. Um, and over time, that takes a real toll. Talking right now with Zoe Gross, Director of Advocacy at the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. We're talking about applied behavior analysis. This is often recommended to parents who have autistic children. It's a way uh, to help them uh, learn certain uh, tasks uh, by using a series of uh, incentives and rewards. But, of course, it's, it's run into a lot of pushback in recent years, especially from people within the autistic community who believe that ABA teaches those young people, essentially how to behave like non-autistic people. And of course, I would love to hear from you on this. If you or your child is autistic, if you have experience with ABA, 866-893-5722 is our number. Again, that's 866-893-5722. Back to our experts in just a second. But I want to talk to Jamie, who's called us from Newport Beach. And Jamie, I understand uh, that both you and your child have autism can you talk to me about your experiences with ABA? Yes. So I am late 
diagnosed autistic, so I did not receive ABA, but I did witness my son receiving it. And one thing that I noticed is, of course, it's applied behavioral analysis. So it's only focused on the behavior and not necessarily the underlying thing leading up to that behavior. A lot of what we observe as quote-unquote autistic traits are actually autistic people regulating overwhelm, anxiety, um, and those things aren't necessarily addressed in ABA. So while modern ABA may be beneficial, it's not as harmful as it was in the past, um, it's also missing a key component where it actually, I noticed my son suppressing um, his anxiety, his overwhelm, which then later would lead to bigger outbursts when he was in a comfortable environment. So I think there's the potential for it to be helpful, but it needs to be paired with psychotherapy with some way for autistic people to also learn how to process those overwhelming emotions rather than just suppressing what otherwise would be healthy regulating behaviors that just aren't socially like hand flapping or other things like that. All right, Stemmy, a very helpful call from Jamie calling us from Newport Beach. Let's talk to Kathleen and Dwardy. Oh, it looks like we just lost Kathleen, so we'll come back to Kathleen in just a second. But I want to now come to Sneha Koli Mother, who teaches master's courses in applied behavior analysis at USC, because the, t- the term that stood out to me from that call, Professor Mother, uh, was suppression and it seems overall it kind of gets at the main concern of, you know, take these feelings that you have, take these experiences that you're having and either don't show them or, or, or put it into some other action. Is there a way to use ABA, to teach an autistic child uh, using the ABA methods without it leading to some form of suppression? Absolutely. And I want to first say, Zoe, you are absolutely correct. As well as the caller, I missed her name, but they're, they're absolutely correct in what they're saying. Um, less optimal ABA practices in the history of our field have focused on um, trying to reduce stimming and, and teaching social skills that are not necessarily relevant to our, our learners' interests or preferences. Instead, what we should be doing is centering our clients' values and voices and figuring out what's important to them to work on. Teaching self-advocacy skills and emotional regulation and skills related to safety or health, not focus on compliance as has been um, the issue in the past. And so now, and I know that it's, I I recognize that a lot of autistic folks have been through traumatic experiences with ABA, and I don't want to be dismissive dismissive of that. But now, as our field is learning and growing, we are moving towards more compassionate, culturally responsive, neurodiversity-affirming, and trauma-informed care. Mm. These are all very important components that have to be a part of ABA, um, and and so ways that you can do that, the biggest way is centering autistic voices. So when someone with autism is telling us, hey, this isn't working, or a parent is telling us they're having more outbursts when you're not here, we need to change what we're doing. Um, another thing, another point that goes back to what Jan was talking about with the social model versus medical model of disability is the double empathy problem. So the medical model of disability would say the current acceptable explanation for differences in behavior is that the autistic person's behavior is a deficit. 
And the acceptable form of treatment is to encourage autistic people to modify their behaviors mm. to reflect mainstream cultural norms and expectations, right? But the double empathy problem reconceptualizes the problem as a mutual lack of understanding of each other's behaviors by neurodivergent and neurotypical people. And the appropriate form of treatment is we have to work together towards understanding these dichotomous behaviors. We as behavior analysts might be experts in behavior, but we are not experts in autism. Only our autistic learners are experts in autism. We need to approach ABA as a collaboration. You know, in just a second, we're going to go back to our caller, Kathleen, who called in. But I do want to uh, ask you, uh, Professor Mother, really quickly uh, about something that's shifted within the ABA community overall, and that's the recent interest uh, by private equity firms that have consolidated smaller clinics into larger chains. And also this model or a belief within especially industries like private equity that you could take a specialized person, perhaps a person that you've trained, um, and that that person would oversee a bunch of people who have a lot less training. So not only is it seen then by the private equity firm as you know a cheap form of medical care that they can provide that they can bill rather high for, but also all these techniques that you're talking about uh, that are so valuable, and it's clear that there's been a lot of evolution in that conversation, but maybe those people aren't trained in those techniques. Are you worried at all about the future of ABA as a therapy when you think about the business model that's behind it? That's a really good question. Um, it's always hard to balance the clinical side of things with the business side of things because without the business side, you don't have any clinical side. Um, and I'll be honest, I don't know much about how to run a business, but the reason I went into teaching uh, in psychology and specifically ABA is so that I could train and support the next generation of ABA practitioners coming in with the highest quality um, ABA, ABA knowledge possible. So I see that there are a lot of people also doing that and moving towards, like I said, a neurodiverse-centered um, ABA approach. Uh, is, is it worrisome that some businesses are, you know, kind of taking advantage of this model? Yes, absolutely. But that's, to be honest, not my area of, of expertise. Talking with Professor Sneha Mather, who teaches master level courses in applied behavior analysis at USC. Let's hear from Kathleen calling us from Duarte. Kathleen, I understand you're a licensed occupational therapist. You have a, a neuroscience background. And you also have some firsthand experience with ABA and LA Unified. Can you tell me about that experience? Sure. Yeah, thank you so much. And yes, um, working in an LAUSD charter school, you know, you're on a team in the special um, education department with ABA, OT, speech and language. And what I was noticing is that some of the people with the least amount of training and schooling and understanding as far as neuroscience goes um, are the ones who are spending the most time with children who were requiring supports in the classroom. And I would just encourage, I love this conversation first and foremost. Um, I work at the Center for Connection and Neurodiversity, and we just feel like the conversation really needs to shift and 
understand that from a fundamental neurological level, the sensory system is unique to every person. And that double empathy is really, it's on everybody to kind of educate and bring their bar up as far as really understanding how autistic individuals are navigating through the world, a very ableist world. So um, thank you again for having this conversation. Of course, Kathleen, thank you so much for calling us. Maria is calling from Hollywood. Maria, you have a 14-year-old son who is diagnosed uh, at age three. You've used ABA off and on. What was your experience? Yes, my experience has been that uh, the ABA agencies, they hire uh, people to come and work with your child who really don't have any level of experience at all, uh, and they pay them very low wages. So there's really no incentive for them to stay with the company, and it's been a revolving door. I would say my son has had well over... 50, and that's not an exaggeration, um, therapists throughout his life. Um, and I can count maybe one or two who have been effective. So I think that's a real issue in ABA and maybe why um, people are thinking it may not be effective. I think it can be effective if the people are trained, if they're paid uh, higher wages, and um, if they come from a background uh, that is related. Uh, I've, like I said, I've had I've had therapists come from completely unrelated backgrounds, mm. and it's they and they come to my house, and it's almost like why why are you even in this job? Um, is is what I'm thinking. <laughs> that sounds extremely difficult. That's Maria calling us from Hollywood. Maria, thanks for calling us. Elmer is in Huntington Beach. Elmer, your son's 20. He's autistic. He received ABA therapy for most of his life. Tell me about how it helped you in some ways, but also seems like it, it, in some other areas you kind of went off script. So my experience with ABA has been mostly positive. It's allowed us to get some replacement behaviors, implement those, and avoid self-injuries and those type of events. However, it's in some ways I think it's limited and um for example, in my, in my son's case, he had a lot of difficulty in potty training. Mm. So it took me all the way to the age of 10 to get him fully potty trained. And ABA therapists had, in general, not look at the behavior, ignore the behavior, which proved, in my case, not to be effective. Mm. I ended up just basically kneeling when he was at the toilet and holding him, allowing him to squeeze me, and at times even bite me on the shoulder, not too hard, but enough that I was there with him in the struggle to kind of understand and void, and I was making the sounds and pushing with him, and that's the way he got body trained. It was it was very, and so it was a difficult time. It takes a lot of effort, but I don't think one size fits all. I think you need to kind of, um, understand it deeply and how that impacts your individual um, child or, or patient. That's Elmer in Huntington Beach. Elmer, thank you so much for sharing that. Zoe Gross, Director of Advocacy at the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. I want to give you the final word on this one because we've talked a lot about uh, the issues and the objections to applied behavior analysis. As you look ahead, as you continue to advocate for autistic people, what are 
the therapies, the practices that you would push for or encourage people to explore and maybe even encourage the government to eventually fund? So there are many alternatives to applied behavioral analysis. Um, before I get into this, I just want to say my organization, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, doesn't endorse any specific type of intervention for autistic children. But I want to be clear there are alternatives out there. So there's occupational therapy, there's speech language therapy, and that can be used to teach either oral speech or the use of communication devices, um, alternative and augmentative communication. There are other interventions specific to autism. Floor time inserts are two examples. Um, but it's really important um, to assess these therapies, even on the basis of practitioner by practitioner, because some of them, the same attitudes that we object to in ABA can creep in there too. And they can, you know, you can have an occupational therapist who focuses on normalization, for example. Um, so ASAN provides a guide to assessing red flags and green flags, um, making sure that um, the goals and, and um, values of a practitioner match up with a family's goals and values for their own child. And are affirming of, of that kid's um, neurodiversity and their experience. Um, we do want to see uh, insurance companies um, forced to fund um, more uh, interventions that aren't ABA. And we also offer um, guides to advocating to your health insurance company to cause them to do that. Um, what we want to see in the end is people with better options, options that are um, helping them learn self-advocacy, helping them learn um, about their disability and how to navigate the world with it, um, and that are accepting of who we are as people, and that's not ABA the way it's practiced right now. That's Zoe Gross, Director of Advocacy at the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. We also heard from Sneha Koli Mather. She teaches master-level courses in applied behavior analysis at USC. Also on the line with us was Jan Blatcher, Distinguished Research Professor of Education and Psychology at UC Riverside. She also is the Director of the Search Family Autism Resource Center. My thanks to each of our guests and all of our callers today. There's so much to be said on this conversation, so I really appreciate everybody making the time today. When we come back, we are going to continue our series on love, digging into what is known as the friend zone, and if it's possible to get out of it. That's coming up, 90 seconds, stick around. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. There is another dimension, a dimension as vast as space, as timeless as infinity. 
It is the middle ground between being completely unnoticed by your romantic interest and being the proverbial apple of their eye. It lies between the pit of our deepest fears of rejection and our greatest hopes of romantic achievement. This is the dimension of imagination, friends, a dimension known as the friend zone. Apologies to Rod Sterling for butchering a classic, but also props to our senior producer, Matt D'Angelantonio, for writing that up for me. I'm Austin Cross. This is AirTalk. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. We are continuing our week-long series on love today, talking about the so-called friend zone. You know, the idea of a place where you end up when you want a romantic or a sexual relationship with someone, but they don't feel quite the same way. Is the friend zone real? Can you escape it? And how do you know if you're in it? With me today to talk about it, two experts. Leah Lefevre is an associate professor of communication studies at the University of Alabama. She's done research on the friend zone and romantic relationships. Leah, welcome to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Austin. Also with us, Demona Hoffman. She's a dating coach and host of the Dates and Mates podcast. She's also got a new book out called F, the letter F, F, the fairy tale, rewrite the dating myths and live your own love story. Demona, thanks so much for coming on. Good to be here with you, Austin. It's always a good day when we see Demona. And of course, I'd always love to hear from you listening in. If you've ever been in the friend zone, maybe you put someone there, maybe you laid it all bare, told your friend how you really feel, but they just did not feel the same way. Did the friendship survive? Did it change at all? How did you navigate those feelings? 866-893-5722 is our number. We have a line open for you. 866-893-5722. All right, Demona, you are the dating coach. So how does the friend zone play into the work that you do with your clients? Well, everybody loves a love story. (laughs) And we all want to skip ahead to the end. And many great relationships do start as friendships, but sometimes great friendships do not progress into relationships. So a lot of times I do get questions on my podcast, Dates and Mates, about how to escape the friend zone when you feel like you have a connection with someone and you want the love story to start unfolding for Mm -hmm. you. And uh, I find that when you are in the friend zone, it's very hard to escape. The easiest way to escape the friend zone is to not get in it in the first place. But I know it's really hard to begin a relationship with clarity because that requires a lot of vulnerability and trust. And then once you've built the friendship, it's uh, it's really hard to rewrite the rules of the relationship from that point. Do you find that people get more comfortable with it? Because, I mean, I will say that I had experience being in that zone when I was younger. But as I got older, after it happens again and again and again, you kind of learn to not let it get that far. Do you find that the folks that are older that you coach uh, maybe are much more aware of the need to establish and communicate and clarify what a relationship is right at the top? Yeah, we learn through each of our experiences. So I do find a lot of times that older clients have more clarity. The other thing that's very interesting in my practice right now, I'm seeing with younger daters, there are a lot of friendships that or relationships that begin in <laughs> when, in friend groups because huh. there's sort of a different um, there's a different pattern that's emerging where Gen Z daters are starting with let's go out on group dates let's hang out they're starting in a place 
of not having clarity because they're not as practiced mm. in speaking what they want. And as they've grown through digital communication, the face-to-face -face communication is something that I have to work with my Gen Z clients on a little bit more strategically. 866-893-5722. If you feel like you were in the friend zone, you put someone there, maybe you were the one who told your friend how you really felt, how did it go? Did the relationship survive? Did it change anything? Maybe you're maybe you're one of those rare success stories. 866-893-5722. If not, I also want to hear that too. 866-893-5722. Let's go to Leah Lefevre, professor of communication studies at the University of Alabama, because uh, Professor Lefevre, you have studied this. And what I found really fascinating from what you found is these kind of tropes around folks uh, trying to initiate these changes when they are a friend. And you've, I'm going to read some of them and maybe you can elaborate on them. But there's the uh, overly persistent woman. Uh, there's the no declaration category. There's the wannabe gentleman category. Can you tell you about these buckets and how we see them play out in relationships? Yeah. Um, so what happens with lots of times, uh, we looked at those people who had suggested that they had been put in the friend zone, and we asked them sort of to talk about their narrative and account to it. Now, oftentimes these are still describing unrequited love, but some of these have nuance mm. like you're suggesting to it. Um, in particular, they're talking about that they're doing all the right things. But I think it goes back to what Demona was saying is they haven't explicitly communicated sort of their intentions and motivations to begin with. And so the overly persistent woman is suggesting that they're doing all these things to suggest that they want a relationship and particularly a romantic relationship in comparison to friendship. And the same thing with the men in this particular instance. I'm caring for them. I'm buying them gifts. I'm showing them affection and attention. But they haven't suggested that is deviating from what a friendship would look like to them. And because of that, they suggest they're doing all these things that would look like a romantic relationship. But they haven't been explicit with a partner that they're interested in having that. Instead, they think that's just part of their friendship. And so I, they fall into sort of those tropes that you're alluding to. Well, so when a person does finally say, hey, I like you, you know, <laughs> and, you know, maybe they've waited a good window of time there. Do you find that those relationships become more strained? Can a relationship actually recover from that? Yes, it can recover, but more often than not, it does not. Mm. Um, you're saying often the relationship becomes very strained because the intentions of one were not explicit to the other or not even known um, and what that looks like. And that's where we really get the friendship or a friend zoning sort of experience. Oftentimes then about a quarter of them, they end up terminating the relationship because they already feel like they're giving to all this relationship and these capacities and it wasn't reciprocal. Um, they, and because of that, they don't want to continue it. Um, a few of them to sort of figure out how to maintain it. But again, that looks oftentimes strained or difficult or time before they can heal from sort of this risk, sort of uh, risk and trust that has been sort of breached in that relationship. And very few, mm. only like out of our, our sample, about six or 700, only about 2% are making it to a romantic relationship even though that still gives us hope that it can happen. 866-893-5722 if you'd like to share your experience. Demona, what are some signs that you're in the friend zone? And what are some signs that you might not be in the friend zone? Oh, signs that you're in the friend zone. If you are doing 
like relationship type things. Like you're going to the grocery store, you're dropping everything for this person. You know, they fly into the airport, Uh-oh. you're driving down to LAX to get them. And yet there's nothing physical happening. You're probably in the friend zone. <laughs> Signs that you're not in the friend zone. I say in F the Fairy Tale that when you want to flirt someone, I say you have to set it up. So that's mm. smile, eye contact, and touch. And that last one is really important. It's very powerful. And so I would say to someone who worries they may be in the friend zone or wants to get out of the friend zone to pay attention to what that touch looks like. If Is it in safe zones, like the shoulder, the hand? Is it very playful? Is it in more provocative zones? That touch will tell you a lot about the future of the relationship. So if you're patting them on the back saying, good job, buddy, you might be in the zone already. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And if you wanted to amp it up, you can try consensual touch in um, more uh, in, in a zone that might get their heart rate up a little bit more. But. It's a definite risk. Yeah. You're you're walking a fine line there, especially if it comes out of nowhere. Yes. It would really surprise a person. Yeah. And it was so interesting what what Dr. Leah was saying about only 2% do end up in relationships. A lot of times people don't want to cross that line. They want to stay in that limbo space because we're afraid to get the answer. And we Mm. think it'll change the relationship, which Mm. it certainly will. And from her research, you can see that it does. But I really question what what are you holding on to? What do you think? It kind of feels like being in love. Well, it feels like being in love, but also it feels like you are chasing something. You're chasing this fantasy and this story that if you get the answer that this person is not interested, then you have to reevaluate everything you've told yourself up until that point and change the end point of the story that you've been telling yourself. Talking right now with Demona Hoffman, dating coach, host of Dates and Mates podcast. Uh, Leah Lefevre is also on the line. Professor Communications has studied friend zone. Anything that you would add to that, Professor? Yeah, I think those points are are really on cue. I think the mediated component Mona sort of talked about to begin with, oftentimes there's sort of these obscure messages. They're suggesting they're being direct in a mediated way, um, which sometimes doesn't play out in the fashion that they're sort of thinking. Um, In addition to that, with that, the touch, I would say, is also very important to understand what that sort of looks like and navigate and sort of time commitment and association with it and not having the person be surprised about it more often than not when the reaction was very like negative or surprised or shock right that of course further strained the relationship and so kind of being upfront with some of those intentions and being more explicit is so important to both the friendship and if you then want to translate that into a romantic relationship Demona Hoffman, so you said up at the top of this conversation, best way to get out of the friend zone, never to get into it to begin with. That's something that I learned. I would say the hard way. It's like, you ever heard the song, there goes my baby? (laughs) It's kind of like that sort of experience. After having a, a few of those, I realized the don't wait method. When you meet somebody who you might have some potential sparks with, you don't wait. You just say, hey, would you like to... Go on a date with me. Using those words somehow, what I learned, prevents it from ever falling into that category because you're saying early, right on, do you think of me like this or no? But let's let's help somebody else out there whose heart may already be broken from everything they've learned from this conversation, Demona. What are some ways uh, that a person can maybe avoid getting put into that zone to begin with? 
language is really important, Austin. Mm -hmm. And I also do see a generational divide on this because the language for younger daters a lot of times is let's hang out. Uh, <laughs> so what I often I find myself <laughs> coaching people to do is be more clear. And I think it's very attractive to be clear and direct. And at the beginning, what's the worst that'll happen? They'll say, no, I don't want to go out. Would you like to have dinner? Would you like to go on a date? And I actually coach my clients to say, when they make a plan with someone, if they want it to be more, actually say, okay, it's a date. Oh. <laughs> and then you get that answer yeah. very early on because otherwise down the road, there's so much, it's so much more complicated and uh, you have to ask the question in a very different way. It's a date. Three magic words that could save you a lot of heartache. We've heard from Demona Hoffman, dating coach, host of Dates and Mates podcast, also author of the new book, F the Fairy Tale: Rewrite the Dating Myths and Live Your Own Love Story. We also heard from Leah Lefevre, associate professor of communication studies, University of Alabama. Looked all into the friend zone. If you want any more of these tips, Air Talk is a podcast wherever you get your pods. You can go there. I'm Austin Cross. We're back with more Air Talk. At ten. Listen, I've traveled every road in this here land. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Love it. Across the deserts, bare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I've traveled, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross. I'm so happy to be with you today while Larry takes a well-deserved day off. We're talking about digital nomads to start this conversation, start this hour. That's someone who leverages remote work to travel or even live in different places around the world, often more affordable places. And to be clear, a lot of people are choosing this lifestyle. A recent survey found around 17 million Americans identify as digital nomads. Alex Atanasova joins me to discuss the growing trend. She is an assistant professor of marketing at City University of London, where she focuses on consumer culture and has been researching the rise of the digital nomad. Professor, so nice to have you with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And for folks listening in, if you identify with the digital nomad life, if you've worked from somewhere else, if you still maybe are somewhere else, uh, what's your experience looked like? How's your life different from how it was when you were solid, based in one place? 866-893-5722 is our number. Again, that's 866-893-5722. Well, Professor Atanasova, I found most fascinating about this off the top, this cultural shift taking place. Uh, and it might in some part be fueled by disillusionment. Can you talk to me about some of the motivating factors we've seen as people have started to move away from what you refer to as kind of a hard life? We're thinking mortgages, uh, a very established life in one city for a long period of time, and moving to, I believe your term was a soft life, but one that uh, could be anywhere uh, with any number of activities as a part of it. Can you just tell us about the motivating factors there? So what we outline is actually the emergence of what we call a liquid uh, way of life uh, rather than soft. So mm. liquid as opposed liquid, to solid it. life, which is, yes, uh, which is, you know, traditionally uh, we think of um, a traditional life path as one where you, you know, you have a 
you know, fair amount of confidence in, um, in the fact that you will have a stable career, that one day you will be able to own a home, uh, that you can look forward toward retirement and, and, you know, some sort of confidence in the future. And what we find is that in today's climate, uh, given all of the precarity and global uncertainty that we're experiencing at the moment, more and more people are uh, feeling quite disillusioned with the prospects that they can ever achieve this. And uh, digital nomadism is a lifestyle phenomenon that really uh, responds to this. And we see swaths of people just um, re-evaluating what they, their aspirations are, what is worth uh, spending you know, their time on in terms of uh, what they want to focus on in life. And they look for ways to have the good life now. Uh, so we see kind of this shift away from the traditional American dream and these people trying to renegotiate how they achieve this good life in the now, which is uh, what they, they do by becoming digital nomads. I mean, what's really interesting about this is that I've heard data that makes me wonder who's who in these sorts of situations because millennial homeowner households became a majority in the U.S., uh, I believe by 2022, just over 50, around 51% of millennials became homeowners. But yet at the same time, there are people who don't think that that is a possibility. Is there a way to parse out? Is it an income-based thing? Uh, is it maybe location? Obviously much harder to buy a home in California or Southern California than somewhere else. Uh, something that would determine whether uh, that person would choose that solid life versus that liquid life. Yeah, we typically see most nomads come from strong passport countries, so uh, North America, Western Europe, uh, people who tend to live in big cities uh, are often part of the so-called creative class, uh, people with uh, in, in tech and creative industries who are not necessarily doing poorly. Um, they do have seemingly good lives, but it is more kind of the sense of, can I really rely on this to... Um, to be the case tomorrow? What is the world going to look like 10 to 20 years from now? Um, so it is kind of like a mix of all of these factors, this notion that um, maybe there is no point of, uh, uh, you know, working for a corporation for the rest of your life in the hopes of this good retirement. And, and uh, you know, maybe there is an easier way to, um, to have the good life now. So it is a bit of income, it is a bit of location, but it's mostly rooted in this ideological uh, view that um, there is a better option out there uh, that doesn't require the nine to five and, and the cubicle. Talking right now with Professor Alex Atanasova, Professor of Marketing at City University of London, where she focuses on consumer culture. She's also one of the researchers on this report that we're talking about right now about the rise of so-called digital nomads, 17 million American workers identified uh, as digital nomads. That's a 131% increase, I should mention, from 2019. So clearly some pandemic factored in there. As far as locations where people are going, Professor, is there uh, a short list of where people are choosing to go? You mentioned that the cost of living would obviously have to be lower wherever they're choosing. Yeah, so we see um, typically people tend to relocate to countries in Southern Europe and Southeast Asia, countries with good weather and comparatively cheaper costs of living, but also with uh, uh, sort of established infrastructures that can support digital nomadic living, which requires the ability to work remotely, right? So most digital nomads either work remotely for companies 
or being self-employed and work as freelancers or entrepreneurs. And they do need a stable internet infrastructure, co-living and co-working spaces. So these countries tend, tend to be mostly in Southern Europe or Southeast Asia. And we also see a uh, increasing list of countries around the world um, offering digital nomad visas. So trying to kind of more formally incentivize these people to relocate to these places from mm. Estonia through Croatia, uh, to Indonesia. So um, uh, we see this kind of trend around the globe signaling that digital nomadism is here to stay and that this cohort is actually uh, bringing positive changes to these local economies in many ways. I mean, you mentioned Estonia. For some of the countries, and we'll also talk about the downside of this in a second, but for some countries, they actually want wealthy Westerners to come in to spend money, right? Very much so. Um, and it's, I think it's, I need to mention here that these people are not necessarily wealthy. Uh, I think we see uh, the people who are affected by this precarity and uncertainty that, that I mentioned um, tend to be those people who used to be sheltered by these uh, systemic risks uh, that we're facing now. So the middle mm. class. So while some of these nomads are fairly affluent, uh, the majority of them are really not. Uh, we're talking about yearly income between 20 to 30,000. We also see the rise of um, digital nomads who are retirees, who are struggling to make ends meet in their, um, in their countries and are looking to maximize their incomes by relocating to cheaper places. We see families, families with kids. So it's not necessarily this kind of affluent cohort who mm. uh, works from the beach in coconut water, right? So uh, I think, um, but even but even so, their presence nonetheless is is creating opportunities for for local economies, and this is why uh, they're seen as an attractive um, kind of cohort to to attract uh, to to bring in to these countries. I mean, so that's so fascinating to me, and it really makes me check my assumptions because in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, tech people. Uh, mid-career professionals, uh, and I had a certain amount of dollar figures in my head, but I'm very surprised to learn. Um, you mentioned $30,000 a year for a digital nomad, and they're going somewhere else to live. Yeah. Do you have any more information that you can share on just the salary ranges uh, that we're seeing of the people who are deciding to leave this country and live abroad? Currently, so this this uh, lifestyle has evolved, and and the types of people that it attracts has has changed. Uh, most of the participants that we had in our data set that we used to uh, for our research, those were people who were making anywhere, as I said, between twenty to to fifty thousand. I guess would be the average. Mm. You know, a percentage between five to ten percent would be uh, more affluent with incomes uh, with you know somewhere a hundred thousand and upwards. Uh, but those were the minority, and I think this is the surprising thing and, and something that we, we see as characteristic to, to this phenomenon nowadays. Uh, before, when digital nomadism started to become popular, it was really attracting these young uh, tech-savvy adventurers, you know, people who could really afford to, uh, to just you know, um, crisscross the world for an experience, something different. Today, we see people doing this out of necessity because um, you can afford a pretty comfortable life with that sort of an income in a country like uh, Bulgaria or Greece or, or in Bali, but it mm. would be really quite difficult to live comfortably uh, in London or New York on this type of income. So, um, so yeah, this is, this is precarity and necessity. It seems to be what is really driving digital nomadism at the moment. 
precarity and necessity. 866-893-5722 is our number. If you have at any point tried the digital nomad life, if you've lived in another area for a long period of time, maybe consider not even coming back uh, because your life was more comfortable there than it is, especially here in Southern California. 866-893-5722 is our number. Talking right now with Professor Alex Atanasova, who has studied uh, this rise of digital nomads. And I want to ask about two parts of the economy. And one is when, you know, digital nomads, Westerners go to an area that's considerably more affordable, how they change that area and maybe the offerings of the businesses in that area but also maybe how businesses here and abroad, a larger level, larger corporations are looking at this trend and thinking about how to best make money off of it. Can you speak to those? Yeah, so I guess one of the biggest criticisms um, that digital nomads uh, face all the time has to do with both the environmental impact that nomadic living requires, all the travel, air travel in particular, and also this perceived um, sense of lack of responsibility that nomads are believed to have toward local communities uh, and otherwise how they're altering rental prices for locals um, uh, and so on and so forth. And of course, you know, there is some truth to that, but different points of view can be true at the same time. And what we see in our research is that um, digital nomads actually contribute toward re-energizing the lo these local uh, economies, creating the need for new types of services that cater to their lifestyles. As I mentioned, co-working and co-living places, um, healthcare for nomads, uh, mm -hmm. places where uh, uh, children uh, of nomadic families can uh, can be educated, and, and so on. So this does have positive economic uh, impact on to local marketplaces, uh, and also nomads are. You know, a lot of the people that we uh, spoke with for our research really wanted to give back to these communities. So they were organizing different uh, clubs and different nonprofits uh, in places where they tend to stay for a little bit longer in order to give back to these local communities. So there's a sense of wanting to contribute, I guess, um, in a more kind of broader sense for the marketplace in general. Uh, what digital nomadism really signals is this shift away from rootedness toward flexibility. So we're, you know, uh, we're not to say that everybody's going to become a nomad in the future, but why nomadism is, um, is becoming popular now is because we see this broader shift in society uh, away from rootedness, away from ownership, and the rise of flexibility. And digital nomads really exemplify what these needs are. So we see how the marketplace is catering for consumers' preference for access uh, over ownership, for instance, think about all the uh, fashion and clothing rental platforms. Uh, uh, major uh, car brands are uh, now offering offering subscription services. We see people um, being attracted to um, to places where they can subscribe for uh, for rentals, like membership based renting companies, uh, like uh, the Lending and Common. So we see this kind of like broader shift toward flexibility. Mm. Uh, and brands seem to be looking for ways to to meet that demand uh, for for consumers more broadly, not even do, not solely digital nomads. I could also imagine, though, that if this trend continues, as I mentioned, up one hundred thirty one percent from twenty nineteen, but if this trend 
were to continue, especially as people leave their jobs, they go to new jobs, they negotiate those jobs, they maybe negotiate some or all of their time being at home, it could really shift the way that we buy things, especially if maybe instead of, you know, 20 people moving out of their parents' house, buying 20 different vacuum cleaners, 20 different punch bowls, you know, just thinking about everything that you need to set up a house, uh, it sounds almost as though, you know, if a person is here, they might be borrowing something rather than buying their own version of something, or they just might not even, you know, be here in the U.S. Do you get the sense that businesses are, are looking ahead uh, to these potential huge shifts that could occur uh, if more people start taking up the digital nomad life? Some businesses are, and, you know, I would hope that more more brands and more businesses would, would see the opportunity uh, in these shifts, as, as you just mentioned. Um, you know, people are simply starting to wonder, do I really need uh, that printer that is gathering dust, you know, uh, <laughs> most of the year in my office. Right. Do I really need to have this picnic cooler? Uh, do I need a, a set of like 12, uh, you know, uh, 12 placemats for when I have a big dinner party right. when I only have it once a year? So we see companies, one of those that comes to mind is called Common Goods, and it's based out of New York, I believe. And they um, are offering uh, vending machines that are stocked with household goods that people can just uh, have for free for a short period of time, or they can rent, rent uh, allowing you know residents in these in these buildings to really have access to these goods that they seldom use uh, without, uh, so that they don't need to have them and, and buy them and, and, and store them at home, which is really a new way of thinking about the material world around us, how we use the the things and the goods in our lives, and what do we really need to own, what we can access. Uh, creating kind of this new sense of uh, common ownership or shared ownership, if you will, for things, which is an exciting development, I think, uh, from a con consumption point of view. So fascinating. We actually have a few calls. Sarah is calling us from Tahunga. Sarah, I understand that you were a digital nomad for a few years. What was your experience? Yeah, um, thank you for having me on. Um, I was a digital artist or a digital nomad and artist who traveled around like um, between 2018 and 2022. I was living in San Francisco and just couldn't really afford to live there and do the things that I loved. So I ended up getting a remote job and traveling to different artist residencies all over the world, um, mostly in Europe and in Mexico. And yeah, it was really fun. Like I met so many different people and got to see the world. Um, but like a previous guest said, I didn't make a ton of money, um, but it was possible to do more with it because I was going to places where, you know, like Greece, where it was a little bit less expensive than San Francisco. So so you feel overall like your quality of life when you were abroad was higher than it was in San Francisco? Yeah, I would say it was better and like different, you know, because being nomadic, I think, does take a toll. Um it's hard to always be moving to a new place and not ever feeling like you totally fit in. So that part was a little bit hard, but I would say I wanted that experience. So as long as I was kind of open-minded, it was really fun. And, but eventually I kind of began to miss home and wanted to move back. So eventually came back home. Sarah in Tahunga, thank you so much for giving us a call. Sandy is calling us from Palm Springs. You're in your 11th year of digital nomad life, Sandy. Yes, I am. 
how's that working out for you? And I, um, I love it. I've been self-employed since I was 21. And about 14 years ago, I decided that I really wanted to live a more nomadic life and be able to get out. My first couple of years, I was able to leave for half a year at a time. Um, then I spent a year in Europe, in Italy, Spain, and Norway. And I came back to the States, and I actually live my nomadic digital life camping around this country because I also, in addition to my marketing and design firm, I began to start training and puppy raising service dogs for Hmm. uh, visually impaired people. So I take my dogs with me, I camp, my puppies, I socialize them, train them, and then I might go and stay with the person who's visually impaired and help them train the dog. Wow, sounds like an incredibly rewarding life. That's Sandy in Palm Springs, digital nomading it for 11 years. We've been talking about the rise of the digital nomad, something no doubt we will talk about more in the future. We heard from Alex Atanasova, professor of marketing at City University of London, where she focuses on consumer culture. She's also one of the researchers on this report into the rise of digital nomads. 17 million, I can't get over that, 17 million American workers identified as digital nomads, up 131% from 2019. This is just so fascinating to me. This is Air Talk. I'm Austin Cross, and today for Larry Mantle, when we come back, can income differences make or break a friendship? Of course, we'll want to hear from you back in 60 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. I feel in the Hispanic communities, we're just told to kind of just keep going. Don't feel. I'm LAS mental health reporter Robert Garova. Getting mental health care is often overwhelming. If you have a patient that was admitted for a serious suicide attempt, if they haven't been suicidal for 24 hours, the insurance company is like, get them the hell out. My reporting helps unravel the knot by focusing on the stories of people struggling to make the mental health care system work for them. LAS, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in today for Larry Mantle. Money. Money, 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 money. It's a touchy subject for a lot of people. It can be especially touchy when there are drastic differences in income in friend groups. Maybe one friend gets a big raise. Another, at the same time, this has happened to me, loses their job. How does this affect a friendship? And how do you navigate a major change in a friend's finances, particularly if that one friend starts acting differently? I think you know what I mean. Before we introduce our guest, if this resonates with you, if you've had to navigate just a difference with friends, they maybe make more, you maybe make more. This affects the vacations that you could maybe go on together, restaurants that you could go to. Who picks up the tab? So many more things, maybe even the new friends that that friend that makes some more money takes on. You just can't stand. How has it worked out for you? 866-893-5722 is our number. 
866-893-5722. How have you navigated those conversations with a friend? With me is Megan McCoy. She's an assistant professor of personal finance planning at Kansas State University. She's also a licensed marriage and family therapist. Professor McCoy, thanks so much for coming on AirTalk. Oh, thanks for having me. So your work focuses on the interaction of money and relation, I should say intersection, intersection of money and relationships. In a nutshell, how does money affect our friendships? Yeah, I think money um, shapes how we see ourselves and how we see others, how um, we um, view the world and how much power and control we feel like we have on our activities. So I, I think it definitely shapes our friendships. <laughs> and so whose job is it in that sort of situation where maybe one making more than the other. Maybe there's some tension that starts to brew. Maybe you mm -hmm. want to nip it in the bud before it becomes an issue. On whose shoulders is the task of addressing the potential elephant in the room? I don't know if your listeners are going to like this answer, but the answer is you, like the person who is hearing this, who's Oof. having the issues. <laughs> I'm sorry. I made everybody hear it. <laughs> <laughs> So, so like we can't change others. And so if you're unhappy in a relationship or the relationship is causing you stress, it's on you to make it better um, by really being open and honest and assertive. I mean, there's so many different things that can happen when one friend is potentially more successful than another. I want to go through some of the dynamics that can arise. Uh most notably, what people might see, especially if you have maintained your high school friends or your college friends, if you're friends with each other on social media, such a wide variety of outcomes can happen in any group of people. You could have one friend who becomes wildly successful in an area, and you mm -hmm. could have one whose life maybe just doesn't spark. They maybe pursued, I don't know, their own business and it didn't work out or something like that. And yet you're maintaining that friendship, and yet the friend maybe who makes more money might feel a little bit bad uh, about even talking yeah. about, oh, the vacation that they just took to, you know, Fiji last mm -hmm. year or something like that. Um, it, I know it does affect friendships, but is there a way that you can actually maintain the friendship, even though what your lives look like can be so very different? Oh, I absolutely do. I think the best thing about having old friends is that uh, grounding that can take place of recalling who you were, uh, who you want to be, and all those iterations in between. I like how you framed it as uh, some of us find success earlier or later. So it might not even be that one person is doomed to not catch up eventually. It could just be that you're at different stages in life, uh, in oh, grad school, um, having children. All those things can speed up or slow down our income um, and our net worth acquisition. So it might be a matter of time before you're on the same ground again. I think the problems often occur when we have un unacknowledged beliefs or, or entitlement or mm -hmm. feelings about the person who is wealthier or the person who hasn't acquired wealth. We, we sometimes have these messages that are passed along in our family about what being rich or what being poor means that comes with um, like uh, a, a projection of uh, their worth or their work ethic or things like that. And so really understanding what messages you hold can help alleviate some of the stress in the relationship. 866-893-5722. If you've had to navigate this sort of shift 
with your friends or with your friend group, especially if one person makes more money than another. 866-893-5722 is the number. Talking right now with Megan McCoy, Professor of Personal Financial Planning at Kansas State University. And this is what we are talking about today. One thing that I have heard probably more than 10 times at this stage is when a person that somebody knew, a friend, marries well, marries somebody who uh, is is far above maybe anybody else in that Mm -hmm. friend group, uh, maybe because of some generational wealth or something like that. And what starts to seep in for the friends as they watch this person embrace their new life is they'll think, oh, this person, you know, is is bougie now. Like this person will only eat at these <laughs> restaurants. They'll only drive these cars. They'll only wear these brands. You know, you'll start to notice yeah. these little things. They turn up their nose like I, I made them country time lemonade and they were like, what, you don't do fresh squeezed, you know, something that's, <laughs> I think this is a very real example, honestly. I mean, but it could be in your head. It could also be a yeah. level of accepting this reality or you could also reject it because, I don't know, you have complicated feelings feelings about wealth or maybe you think that money should have been yours. How do you, how do you navigate that? Well, I think absolutely. If it's, if you can rule out that it's not you projecting it because of your belief systems around wealth or, you know, rich people are greedy or rich people are this or that. Another thing that could be really helpful is that we tend to realize the context of our own behaviors. Like I snapped at my husband because I was hungry or I was tired or had a long day. Right. But if my husband were to snap at me, it's quick, it's easier to say, well, that's just because he's a jerk. It's easier to make this like a grand personality based on the behaviors rather than assuming context. And so I think another great skill in life is being able to be curious about what uh, the behaviors we're seeing, the reason underneath it and not assuming is globally, they become snobby. Uh, maybe it's something else altogether. Looking at the underlying behaviors, there's also something mm-hmm. called entitlement that does slip in too, right? Yes. Especially if, <laughs> you know, the friend has, you know, picked up the tab one time and you just start to expect them to pick it up all the time. Or maybe one time they expect you to pick it up and you're looking at your bank account and there's maybe three or two figures in there and maybe that's not possible. <laughs> um, does one have to really check themselves when it comes to any level of entitlement in these sorts of situations? Yes, I think uh, it's so easy to say before you acquire wealth that, of course, I'd be super generous. Of course, I would pick up all the tabs. But I think over time, there has to be a sense of fairness that everybody craves in life. Or maybe it's just because I'm a firstborn. (laughs) But I do think that it's hard to continuously being the one who picks up the tab. So I think it's also helpful to try to figure out other ways to support our friends. So maybe your friend is able to provide you more financial support in, in appetizers or a drink here and there. What are some of the things that you can do for them? Like, do you find ways to be thoughtful? Or do you find ways to maybe watch their kids for them or give other forms of instrumental or emotional mm. support to kind of scaffold their financial support? Uh, and I think also checking our own entitlement that just because they have acquired wealth does not mean they owe it to us. Uh, it they They have earned it themselves, they probably have financial goals in place. And maybe we don't see some of the underlying goals they're saving up for or the debts they're dealing with. We only mm. see that that uh, title on LinkedIn that makes us think we make a lot, they make a lot of money. Right, right, right. 
Uh, talking right now, wow, this is such a fascinating conversation. Talking right now with <laughs> Professor Megan McCoy, a professor of personal finance and planning, Kansas State University, talking about how to navigate friend relationships when one person maybe comes into the money. Vicki is calling us from Orange. Vicki, I understand that you have a friend who is, as you put it, super wealthy. How does that play out in your relationship? So it's the ideal, I think the most generous ideal situation. Um, this family, um, they are very wealthy and they live the dream in terms of like, you know, all of us say, if we had a lot of money, what would we do for our friends? And they actually do it. They, hmm. they go on vacations and they bring their entire friend group and pay for everything from air, you know, airfare to hotel accommodations to the whole vacation. And they're just this incredible group of people who decided that, you know, the vacation's not as fun if we're not taking our friends, that they might not be in the financial situation that we're in. So why don't we just splurge and bring everybody? Does it feel comfortable, Vicki, or was it uncomfortable at first knowing that, you know, maybe you weren't looking at the checks that they were picking up, but did it feel comfortable being in that sort of situation? That's a great question. Um, I think there's that feeling of, is this for real? Um, what's going on here, but I think it's that human place in us where there's a mini Greek tragedy in all of us where we're thinking the, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling, call it what you will, something's not real here. Mm. Um, so I think maybe we all have that feeling of what's going on, but um, years and years of friendship have shown us that nothing's going on. It's true generosity, true kindness, um, and like I said before, that feeling of we would do the same thing, which I think is why we're all such good friends together. Wow. And we do, like in our own ways, we'll do really genuine, sweet things for our friends who are so generous to us. But it's just at a different financial level. And they're the kind of people who, A, will say, you didn't have to do this, and B, say, oh, my gosh, thank you. We love it. Wow. That's Vicky and Orange. Megan McCoy, I mean, when I think about this, and I, I hear, okay, people with money – genuinely good to their friends, doesn't seem like they expect anything in return. Money can probably highlight a lot about who we actually are. This is leaning on your marriage and family therapist side of things. But I think that if a person, I don't know, if a person maybe is a little bit broken on the inside, if they're not used to healthy relationships, money just seems like it would amplify whatever is true about a person. Is that the case? Oh, I believe that so, so much. I think if we don't have confidence, if we don't have self-worth, it's easy to apply our financials as our self-worth, as a substitute for who we are on the inside. And so I just love everything about that story because in her example, that wealthy family intentionally decided spending on family and friends was what gave them joy and research supports it. I mean, we've even done studies in fMRI machines where we've been able to see that people's well, pleasure part of their brain lights up when they give or spend on others. What's wild is it even lights up if we tell you, you have to. So like, you will be happier if you spend on your loved ones. Hmm. Um, but that idea of having the decision within them that they weren't forced to, their friends didn't expect it. And that's underlying gratitude and gratefulness that's going between them bi-directionally. I think that's the true way it's worked out so well for everyone involved. Just about 30 seconds left, Professor McCoy, but uh, behavioral changes maybe people should be on the lookout for in friends, maybe themselves, when there is a big change in a financial situation. 
Yeah, I think a good one to pay attention to, especially if it's you who has a little less than your friend, is making sure you're not overextending yourself to keep up with them. Uh, if you notice that you are trying to go to the restaurants they're going to, or the vacations they're going to, and you're getting more and more in debt, uh, a shift needs to take place. I think also jealousy is uh, one of the most painful things we experience. Mm, and right. so if you notice that coming up, it, it is important to recognize who you want as a financial role model. Like we did a study at Kansas State where they looked at college students' happiness and we thought things like how much they made at their part-time job or how much their parents made or how much student loan debt they had would be the sign of their financial stress. But that was not it. The only true predictor of how stressed they felt financially was how much they felt like their friends could do more than them. Like the definition of FOMO, so <laughs> I know incredible. a little outdated, was what's causing pain. And so if you notice jealousy or FOMO coming up in, in yourself, then really shifting gears and saying, that's not my role model at my developmental stage. This person who has a similar career path as me or this person with a similar family path as me is going to be my role model. I'm going to make sure I compare myself to them, not this friend who has other wealth levels than I do. That's Professor Megan McCoy, Professor of Personal Financial Planning, Kansas State University, also a licensed marriage and family therapist. Professor McCoy, thank you so much for coming on today, talking friends and money with us. Having me. Thank you. When we come back, the TV that you're going to want to watch this rainy weekend, back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist immigrant communities correspondent Leslie Berestein Rojas. For many, this has been their only job since immigrating to the United States. My work connects communities, helping us discover one another, better understand how immigrants are changing LA, and how LA changes immigrants. LAist independent journalism, fact-based journalism. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in today for Larry Mantle. We wanted to keep you updated on a story we're watching here. Firefighters who were responding to a truck with pressurized cylinders uh, lit on fire, suddenly exploded in Wilmington. So far, three firefighters have been taken to a local hospital. At least two of them are in critical condition. Uh, we're going to bring you a press conference about that in the 11 o'clock hour. So I would encourage you, of course, to stay with LAist 89.3. You can also listen online at LAist.com. We'll get the latest on the condition of those firefighters and maybe learn a little bit more about what happened. But for now, every Thursday here on Air Talk, we bring on a couple of TV critics to help us navigate the oh-so-saturated landscape of streaming and cable TV shows, and hopefully they give us a few ideas on how to spend our precious TV time over the weekend. With me to talk about it today, Kristen Baldwin, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. Hello, Kristen. Hi, how are you? We, I'm stellar now that you're here. We also have Jen Chaney on the line. She's a TV critic for 
Vulture. Jen, welcome to you. Thank you so much. Well, let's start off with the Vince Staples show. Jen, what are you thinking? Well, this is a show that's based around uh, Vince Staples, who is an actual person, a hip-hop artist. Uh, he's also an actor. You may have seen him, for example, on Abbott Elementary. Um, he played Quinta Brunson's boyfriend during the previous season. And this is the first time he's had his own show really built around him. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it reminds me a little bit of Atlanta, the Donald Glover show, in that it's also about uh, mm. someone who is a well-known hip-hop artist to some level, but trying to navigate his fame. Each episode is really a different story, so you can almost drop in at any point. And it's funny, but there is certainly social and racial commentary embedded in every episode. Um, it's a quick watch. It's five episodes, about a half an hour or less each. And I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really strong, and I'd like to see a second season for this. Talking about the Vince Staples show on Netflix, Kristen, what did you make of it? I loved it. And I, uh, though I had also seen him on Ad Abbott Elementary, I really wasn't familiar with him as a rap artist um, and didn't know what to expect. And what I like about it is, you know, yes, he's playing himself. He is the rapper, but the show has nothing to do with his music career. We just follow him as he kind of tries to make it through the day in Long Beach. And my favorite episode called Black Business, uh, finds him in the middle of a bank robbery and hostage situation. But it turns out that one of the armed assailants, played by a guy who's so good, Miles Bullock, is one of his old friends from the neighborhood. And he ends up using the relationship with the thieves as leverage to get a bank loan. It's it, it's just, it takes you places that you, know, you wouldn't expect. And it's really funny and very dark. Uh, uh, as Jen said, it's it's uh, has some very sort of fatalistic overtones as well, but I loved it. That's so fascinating. I mean, I'm laughing at just the way that you've described that. <laughs> the Vince Staples Show, it's on Netflix. All five episodes premiered today, so this is hot off the presses, so definitely something I think I'm going to try to watch. Uh, let's talk about The Daily Show, Jen, because I caught it. Jon Stewart is back, and ooh, is he back. He really brought it for uh, his opener there. Tell us what you made of The Daily Show, season 29. Yeah, so Jon Stewart has signed back on as an executive producer, but he's also hosting, <clears throat> but only once a week, every Monday night. So we've only seen him do this once, but to your point, it was a very strong return. I think there was a lot of consternation and concern that you know, he would still be stuck in the Obama era, uh, maybe not be offering the kind of political commentary that we need at this particularly fraught moment. But I thought he did a great job. And it was just a reminder, like, you know, Trevor Noah was great. And there are other people who do this who are great. But Jon Stewart is like the OG master of this kind of political commentary. And uh, I'm really curious to see where he goes with it in the coming weeks. Yeah, that's uh, created by Madeline Smithberg and Liz Winstead. We actually talked to Madeline Smithberg on Monday ahead of the release of that show. Got some very uh, fascinating backstory on the show, how it came to be. You can definitely listen wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can listen to LAist. Uh, we were talking about The Daily Show now on season 29 on Comedy Central and Paramount+. Plus. Season premiere was on Monday. You can catch that on Paramount+. Plus. You can always catch it the day after on Paramount+, Plus as well. Otherwise, you can catch it 11 p.m. if you stay up that late on Comedy Central. Next up, Kristen, let's talk Love is Blind, now on season six, which I was surprised. I had no idea they were at season six. Uh, they are just my, cranking how, it out. Time flies when the love is blind. Uh, tell us about that. 
Yeah, so season six of Love is Blind is here featuring 30 singles, this time from Charlotte, North Carolina, and they're trying to find a love connection while dating in these isolation pods where they can hear the other person through a wall but can't see them. Um, and ultimately, some of them choose to get engaged, and then they meet each other in person and have to a month to decide if they actually want to get married. And this, the first six episodes are out now, and this season uh, has some very dysfunctional love triangles, which is bad for the contestants, Ooh. but very good for us. Uh, I think my favorite is Jimmy, a 28-year-old software salesman. Um, he has a hard time deciding between Chelsea, a 31-year-old flight attendant, and Jessica, a 29-year-old executive assistant. But the drama doesn't end after he proposes to one of them. And one thing we do learn this season is that you should never, ever, ever say if one of the person people in the pod says, hey, you know, are, do you have a celebrity lookalike? Don't answer that question. It's not going to lead to good things. <laughs> one no. young lady says she is often mistaken for Megan Fox. And it has okay. consequences. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, I think I can only imagine how that goes. It's a clever way of trying to figure out exactly mm -hmm. what the person that you're talking mm -hmm. to looks like, though. Uh, is this something that you would recommend for weekend watching? I mean, if you want something, oh god, yes, oh, get that yes. drama I mean, on, look, get the popcorn, get the popcorn. Um, there is one couple that I am really invested in, uh, Brittany and Kenneth. They're an interracial couple. They both have deep faith and they fall for each other quickly. I'm so hmm. invested. I know their relationship is going to implode. This just how this show does it. <laughs> Darn this show. But yes, absolutely. It's a it's a great and very uh, sort of Schadenfreude binge the show is love is blind now on season six if you can believe it episodes one through six premiered yesterday valentine's day of course episodes seven through nine uh, come out on the 21st overall there will be 12 episodes talking right now by the way with Kristen baldwin tv critic for entertainment weekly who you just heard from we are also talking to jen charney tv critic for vulture and Jen, let's check out the new look that's on Apple TV. It explores the rise of fashion designer Christian Dior as he dethrones Coco Chanel and how he returns spirit and life to the world with his iconic imprint of beauty and influence. What a lovely description. What do you think of the new look, Jen? Well, after talking about Love is Blind, I feel like we need to sit up straight and conduct ourselves properly to discuss this show. Um, as you said, it is about the careers of Christian Dior and Coco Chanel, uh, who are played here respectively by Ben Mendelsohn and Juliette Binoche, two excellent, excellent actors. The first three episodes have already dropped on Apple, and they're very, very focused on the World War II era and specifically mm. how both Dior and Chanel uh, kind of worked with the Nazis and felt uh, oh. really trapped in, a, in awful situations uh, during that era. And then it'll go beyond that, uh, a new episode drops every week and it'll talk more about their their careers and, and lives beyond that. But um, I don't know if Kristen agrees with this, but I feel like Apple TV has become the bastion of prestige TV at this mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Like the, all of their shows are, they look beautiful. They really spent money on them. They have wonderful actors in them. And this is very much in line with that idea. Uh, I don't know how much it's going to stick with me. Like I could see myself, you know, I've watched the first few. I could see myself never finishing this, even though I think it's yeah. very good. You know what I mean? Because there's just so many shows like this on Apple that are very good, but not quite, wow, you have to watch this immediately. But if you are interested in Dior or just that history, for sure, you, you should check it out. I mean, that's just such an interesting commentary that obviously they're spending a lot of money on it. 
what you're walking away from with it is, you know, there's so much out there. Like, I don't have to finish this. Like, you're not feeling the draw, which to me just feels like is is the storyline is it ever going to be what it needs to be to keep you hooked, to keep you waiting for those episodes to come out again on the 21st? Right. I mean, it's just hard. As you said at the top of our segment, you know, there's just so many things to watch. And, you know, 20 years ago, a show like this uh, would have been on HBO and probably a lot of people would have talked about it and would have gotten a lot of Emmys. And maybe it will. I don't know. But um, there's so much good stuff that even stuff that is very good has to be exceptional to really break through. Wow. The new look, we're talking about it. It's on Apple TV. Episodes one through three premiered yesterday as well, Valentine's Day. Episode four will release on February 21st. Overall, there will be 10 episodes. Uh, Let's move on to Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Okay, this is one that I've actually been uh, really into, Kristen. Uh, Mm -hmm. Two strangers, land job with spy agency, offers them a life of espionage, wealth, travel, But the catch is that they have new identities and they're in an arranged marriage. What could possibly go wrong? Kristen, (laughs) tell us what you're thinking about. And, you know, speaking of streamers that spend a lot of money, you know, it's so interesting. Amazon last year uh, released a show called Citadel, which was like $11 bazillion in a globetrotting spy drama. And it was boring god Mm. it was boring and uh you know but they are now doing six different spinoffs of it mr and mrs smith is such a unicorn because it's a reboot that nobody asked for but it's actually really good and it both (laughs) evolves and honors the original and they spent a lot of money on this too but they also cared about the writing and the characters you know donald glover and maya erskine uh stars john and jane smith as you said they're paired up in an arranged marriage they're total opposites but naturally they fall in love and the show sort of cleverly transforms the challenges of their globetrotting spy lifestyle into relatable relationship quandaries like my favorite example is in episode five when the smiths have to protect a high value asset played by ron perlman one of the many big guest stars in this series and he's so petulant and such a persistent whining little jerk that it gives them an unexpected glimpse of what life with a toddler is like um and (laughs) yeah it's just every episode is a new adventure uh and there's a little bit of a through line in terms of the company that they work for but uh there's a great cliffhanger and I really hope that Amazon gives it another season. The show is Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Donald Glover and Maya Erskine are in it. Just so fun. I haven't gotten as far as episode five, but I am seeing the connection between uh, what their mission is as their relationship evolves and uh, some of the things that they just have to simply learn by going through it. Uh, That is on Amazon Prime Video. All episodes, all eight episodes premiered earlier this month. Let's get in one last one. One Day on Netflix. Jen, what did you think? Oh, I really like this series very much. It's based on uh, the novel by David Nichols that came out back in 2009. And you may recall that it was also made into a film shortly thereafter with Anne Hathaway. But I think this uh, story is much more suited to television because it really, the book is episodic. Every chapter takes place on the Mm. same day in a different year in the life of this couple. And that just lends itself perfectly to a television show. Um, It's also helped enormously by its two leads, Ambika Maud, who you may remember from a wonderful British medical series called This Is Going to Hurt, and Mm. Leo Woodall, who was in the second season of The White Lotus. You know, a show like this, it's tracing relationship is only going to work if 
the actors in it are appealing and complicated and interesting, and if they have great chemistry, and they absolutely do. Um, this is 14 episodes, uh, roughly 30 minutes a piece, and I blew through the whole thing in one weekend because I was enjoying it so much. So uh, definitely recommend this. Would you say there's an advantage to doing those 30-minute episodes? It's not something that I hear about very often, but it also seems like an ability to tell a story in a different way than, say, maybe an hour-long episode. Is that what you've noticed with this? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's an advantage to me because every TV critic <laughs> that sees 30 minutes is like, Amen. yes. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I think there is value. You can tell, and especially when you have this many episodes and it's structured the way that it is, it still feels like a very deep, rich story, even though each episode might not be super long. Um, you know, I, I, I think it works really well. And the other thing is the music in this show is excellent. They did such a good job choosing needle drops from each specific year that really are evocative of that time. Um, loved that, too. So fascinating. The show is One Day. It's on Netflix. All 14 episodes premiered earlier this month. We've been hearing from Jen Charney, TV critic for Vulture, Kristen Baldwin, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. My thanks to you both for coming on today. This is Air Talk. I'm Austin Cross, in today for Larry Mantle, back with you for real on Friday, as I always do tomorrow. I am looking forward to that and our food Friday. Stick around for Here and Now. What's coming up next? Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com events. See you there.